0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. In our tech-driven lives, we're increasingly vulnerable to security breaches. Whether it's clicking on a link in a phishing email at work, or setting up an Alexa in your home, our information can be collected. William Evanina leads the National Counterintelligence and Security Center.
1: The ability to collect on each other as Americans is fascinating right now whether it be a, through a baby monitor or more sophisticated. And if you just want to spend $100, you could do things that the CIA and would dream about 20 years ago. So it's, it's pretty scary.
0: Today, he explains the current state of security for individuals, companies, and the government. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Homeland Security Program in conjunction with the Washington Ideas Roundtable Series. William Evanina's National Counterintelligence and Security Center works to keep classified information out of the hands of nation-state actors and terrorists. The NCSC also helps businesses counter cyber threats. He says more than 90% of security breaches in the private sector in the last seven years are because of successful spear phishing or fake emails from cyber criminals.
1: Unfortunately, as Americans, uh, we have an, an incredible inability to not click a link we just cannot do it right so we are the we're the best in the world at clicking our links and our adversaries know that
0: he says he's even been a victim of a spearfish attack today he talks with NPR counterterrorism correspondent Dina Temple-Rastin about cybercrime Edward Snowden and government background checks Temple-Rastin starts with the upcoming midterm elections in the US and whether the Russians will play an unwanted role
2: can you give us an idea about the kinds of things that are being done to prevent the Russians from interfering or other people from interfering in the midterm elections?
1: Uh, With respect to the elections, which is uh, obviously a popular topic, uh, the intelligence community and partnering with the rest of the government have worked really hard the last few months to try and really understand what actually happened uh, versus the propaganda around what happened. Mm -hmm. And as you saw with uh, the indictments a few months ago by the FBI, um, that really, I think really took it into a different um, narrative with respect to what the capabilities are of our adversaries and what that influence looks like. So working with uh, DHS, who has a point here, in the FBI and the intelligence community, we work together pretty regularly to understand a couple things. Number one, uh, learn from what happened and how did it happen, and as you saw in the, most recently with the tech companies and Facebook uh, and Congress, everyone plays a part of this and has been victimized by this. So what we need to do is continue to find avenues of drive, uh, really functionable, actionable intelligence that we collect around the globe to help advise and inform through DHS uh, the state and local election officials who are victimized. At the end of the day, all of our elections in the US are local. So they are the recipients of the spear attacks and the uh, cyber attack that may come from a foreign adversary. The federal government's job is to advise and inform what that looks like, what does it feel like, how does it uh, look when it's manifested, and then find a way to uh, facilitate, uh, in through DHS's role, what's the best way to help them without interfering with their mission. Uh, we saw uh, through the election of 2016 the capabilities of, of Russia, what their intent was. So now moving with towards these midterms, what can we do in the federal government to do a better job? Uh, A predictive analysis what it might look like, what the influence may be or may not be uh, without understanding the intent of adversaries, and will there be other countries that are going to follow suit as Russia did? So that's kind of the challenge we have right now. The government is uh, working very closely with each other to identify, understand the matrix threat that it is, and then what's the realm of the possible? Right? So I don't I don't think anybody really realized the capabilities that we saw through the, the FBI that the Russians that would 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 go to with influence. Um, that's the challenge we have now. What does it look like in in two thousand and eighteen, but two thousand twenty?
2: So there are essentially two themes when it comes to looking at the elections. That um, was the in- intent to sow discord, or was the intent to actually affect the elections? Which. There are two camps. Yeah. Which camp are you
1: in? I'm in neither camp. I, I'm, I'm not a camper, so uh, <laughs> I, I am a purveyor of facts, right? So, uh, what we try and do is provide the the relevant facts in the community for policymakers to make decisions going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, I, I think my my assessment, uh, of looking at all the intelligence, is that uh, the Russian Federation had a plan, a motive. I think they exceeded their expectations of success. And if you look at the history, longevity of the Russian uh, mindset uh, with propaganda and influence, they su- extremely succeeded. And, and I would argue that uh, the intent to sow discord is, is a factor of that, but to what extent, right? So the, the question has to be in, okay, if they're going to s- sow discord in Detroit or Chicago or Miami, what's the end game, right? And I think that's the point we have to really do a good job of ex- explaining the why, the mm-hmm. so what. So yes, slow discord, but actually uh, drive a wedge through three things. And and this is going to take it up a few levels. Number one, if you look at what's uh, the biggest threat to the Russian Federation, uh, number one is our democracy, and number two is our our capitalism and our way of life. So if they can find a way to facilitate discord in those three things, that's going to be their objective. And, that, and the best way to do that is via our electoral process.
2: So um, you work a lot with the private sector, and you mentioned uh, Facebook. What do you understand about the Russian buying Russians buying ads on Facebook to affect public opinion? What do you understand now that maybe you didn't understand six months ago?
1: Um, I think the government is trying to look at this in two ways strategic way uh, from the intelligence services of the Russian Federation, as well as the real life what happened. And I think when you look back to uh, the assessment and and the testimony that you've seen online and the capabilities of Russia, you look at what was their intent versus did it really work? The second part of it, like any metric, is hard to prove. Did it really work? But their intent was clearly there. But the mindset to say, we're going to utilize a purely American part of our fabric, Facebook, to facilitate this discord is not only uh, creative, but it's, um, it's a mindset that we don't, in the US, un- clearly take uh, stock in the capabilities and the intent for utilizing our society against us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of our messages is in the private sector because if you look at what we do in the private sector, we build things to sell things. Well, part of that is because we have a global economy that doesn't always mesh well with the security and national security of a, of a nation. So the biggest challenge is trying to get in that space, make people aware. At the same time, don't scare them and don't be uh, the boogeyman in terms of what the national security risk is. And you'll see that in the technology firms, in the big tech world, whether it be nanotechnology, semiconductors, microprocessors, are all important things for the growth of the world and the growth of our economy. At the same time, they have do use technologies for adversaries. Right. So how do we then sell that to a CEO who's trying to maybe sell their company to a, a firm that's one of our adversaries?
2: Which sort of gets to this idea of supply chain, which everybody is talking about now. How are you focusing on um, supply chain and and affecting that so uh Bad elements can't get into what it is that we're doing, whether it's in the intelligence community or even, as in the news today, uh, in telephones that might be here in the United States.
1: Supply chain um, is, is a really challenging concept because if you break it into two areas, what is supply chain? Right. right. I was just going to say, what why don't it? you explain what so you think? So we, we of have to. S- we spend a lot of time explaining the, the chain of a supply chain, and then there's a lot of folks in the private sector who live in this business space. So if you are Walmart, or you are Microsoft, or you are company ABC in Kansas, you don't make everything you sell, right? And there's a chain that you procure issues from. The same thing when it goes to big Department of Defense with uh, weapon systems and platforms, uh, they're made by multiple organizations. And, and, and any given procurement, you have a general contractor. And, that, and you say, okay, general contractor, I want you to build my house. You have a contract between him and yourself her and yourself, that company, and you say, build my house. Okay, and they go, and but they hire a subcontractor for electrical, plumbing, mechanical. That is supply chain, right. and that goes for building big buildings or building industry or building weapon systems and delivery systems. Right. So how do we ensure that when you build your house and you walk in that house and you take the keys that your electrical system and your mechanical system and your plumbing is not tied to a foreign government? And that's the the kind of the metaphor we use to, say, understanding the national security threat of supply chain, whether it be in the 5G area or whether it be telecommunications, the financial sector. When we have an IT system that needs to be redone in a company and you hire a major U.S. company to reroute your IT, well, who are they subbing that out to, the routers, the switches? That's really important. how do you play a role in that? So uh, the uniqueness of NCSE, and the title is a national counterintelligence executive, You know, was created in 2002 with unique authorities to really drive across um, the mosaic of the country. So the government and the private sector. So what we do is we lead counterintelligence security for the U.S. government. We also do a a really important messaging of the private sector, and that includes industry, technology, academia, think tanks. Try and get out there and take the known, here's the threat, but how does that manifest itself with you? In in a very small sliver of countering the intelligence threat. So the who and the why. So if DHS or FBI have a cyber uh, event and they do um, an action and they go out and they, they consult and they provide victim notification, we like to go in and say, well, here's who did it and why. For instance, in cyber espionage, economic espionage, it's, it's not enough anymore to say, well, this might be an IP address that res, that resolved back to China. So what's the strategic plan by the Chinese to do this? What's their intent? What is that technology they want and why do they want it? To help it advise and inform not only the company that was victimized, but the sector they live in, whether it be technology or… or
2: and do you invite them in? How we do we do, do, do.
1: we do. So a couple examples. Uh, just recently, uh, we had… The energy sector came in uh, twice with partnering with the Department of Energy and the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulators, and we brought in a whole host of companies, both on the security side and the executive side, to give them a one-day read-in of what the threat picture looks like for them. To be able to take that back to their companies, advise and inform not only their board members, but their security apparatus. Hey, here's what the government uh, is seeing from an intelligence perspective. Here's how it's manifested in our energy sector, whether it be oil, gas, pipeline issues or electrical. So provide that avenue. And then that helps DHS work at the sector specific area or in the telecommunications or finance side, Department of Treasury, do their job in manifesting protection. We provide that little sliver of here's the intel threat stream, we're gonna give you a one day clearance. Go back now and take the appropriate action and work with your regulators. And I think that's been a So this is really
2: CISOs you call in or CEOs? Uh, it depends
1: on on what the threat is. And sometimes you know there's really no belly button in the private sector. Uh, there's now this new term, chief risk officer. Okay. Right, which yeah. was which is gaining some popularity. That the CISO or the CSO, the chief security officer. We work a lot with the board of directors and a lot of C-suite folks uh, because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is change behavior.
2: And are you are you masking what the who the actual company who might have been on the receiving end is? Are companies a little reticent to uh, have their particular problem made public?
1: Both, both, and this is not the second part of that is not a new situation. If you are a company that's been been victimized uh, via cyber breach or attack or spearfish attempt, mm-hmm. there's always going to be a really robust conversation. In that company, do we report it? Do we call the FBI and say, hey, we've been victimized, we've had a breach, we have an exfiltration? Uh, We hope that they call often and early uh, to the federal. Do they? they, They've gotten much better at it. I've been in this job almost four years. Uh, Four years ago, I would say they they, they don't. And I think we've made a lot of progress for multiple reasons in, in reporting of that kind of theft. And I think sometimes crisis helps that along. And I think when you have a lot of major breaches in the federal government, the financial sector and travel industry. I think people realize it's not just about them when they're breached. That this is a, a systemic problem in our society.
2: Mm-hmm. And are you, are you the first people that they go to, or do they usually go to DHS?
1: No. So uh, there's there's a presidential policy directive uh, forty one that came out last year. The FBI is, is the first line um, for re- reporting these type of breaches to, and the FBI handles in partnership with DHS uh, the response to those companies. We typically work the Behind the scenes or after the fact to explain the who and the why, but we're not part of the response effort for cyber breaches.
2: Okay, so I've just started watching The Americans. Hmm. And, Great show. Um, which I think if I had watched it six years ago, I would have thought uh, much uh, less of it than I do when I'm watching it now. I've just finished the first season. Um, and so you've said in the past that there are about 100 Russian intel officers hmm. in the U.S., hmm. and it appears about 60 of them have been asked to leave. Um, so does that mean about three dozen remain? And um, historically, have those numbers been pretty steady? Well,
1: there's a lot of questions there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so let's start with the Americans. So, uh, which is-
2: <laughs> What episode are you on
1: I'm up to date. Mm-hmm. So, uh, multiple <laughs> times. Um, I, I, I have to be um, transparent here. So I, I was part of the FBI team. Uh, working this investigation up through 2011, 2010, with the arrest of, of the Russian illegals that were here. So um, I have a lot of uh, history and experience in this realm. This is so a
2: Chapman case? Yes,
1: yeah. yes. Um, everyone thinks of Anna Chapman, right? Yes, yeah, There sorry. was a lot more to it than that. <laughs> so um, I think when you, when you look at that perspective, that goes, I think, in the same bucket of what we saw in the election threat. The capabilities, intent, and the ability to think of the impossible with possibility of our adversaries, that they were able, they were willing to accede all these families legitimately through illegitimate ways here in the US to uh, spot, assess, recruit US uh, individuals and identify our policy mindset, and some of it through very nefarious and, and sickening ways in terms of using um, dead children's biographical data, right? So when you look at that capability, um, Sorry, we, what
2: do you mean by that?
1: So uh, one of the couple, not to get specifics, it'll bore out the people oh, in the I'm audience trying. here, yeah. but um, one of the couple uh, that were here as rushing illegals utilized um, the biographical information of a child who had died in Canada. So um, before we arrested uh, that individual, the FBI went and told the parents of that child that when we arrest uh, one of these individuals, they're going to have the name of your child who passed away years ago. So... That is a nefarious activity of our foreign adversaries, and sometimes we have to keep that in mind that they will go to those extents to do that. So that program uh, in the Russian um, SVR program is called the Illegals Program. Uh, We believe, we uh, eviscerated that back in 2010, and the Russians, through policy with the U.S., have have, uh, committed to not doing that anymore. Uh, We hope they're held to that standard. Uh, But that um, is not the same as the legitimate uh, diplomatic staff that's here in the U.S. Uh, that are here on diplomatic visas, of which a good proportion, a number of them, are really intelligence officers. Right. And that's nothing new in the world. Uh, right now, as you know, we sent 60 back and a total of 90 over the last couple of years. Uh, but yes, I think there's still a handful left. I know, I know there are, mm-hmm. and then I think the White House is holding them out as potential uh, sanctions in the future if uh, activity continues.
2: Do you still follow Russian personnel around, like physically, or um, is it that time now better spent
1: online? So um, that's a question for the FBI, but the FBI does follow um, those individuals who are deemed to be uh, intelligence officers quite frequently. Um, Resources are always a problem, obviously, because you have your your homegrown violent extremists you have to follow as well. But the ones who do the most damage, depending on what they do, uh, as well as following around, um, we, we call them TDY travelers, individuals who come from... Foreign countries who are coming here to do so much damage, the FBI is uh, uh, responsible for following them around as well. NCSC and the OD-9 uh, do not conduct any of those operational missions. Mm-hmm.
2: But you get reports about
1: them? Yes. Okay.
2: So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Snowden, who's someone we haven't heard about for a while. Um, I assume you're continually doing assessments on, mm-hmm. on uh, what he... Uh, actually did get away with and the damage that happens. Can you sort of update us on that?
1: Sure. Um, which is exciting. So my first two years in this job, most of it was regarding Edward Snowden. So uh, after the the events of 2013. So we, it's funny, we are just about ready to deliver to the uh, Director of National Intelligence in the White House, the seventh Snowden damage assessment. And those damage assessments are highly classified and they go to just a handful of folks in in the U.S. Um, I will say that the amount of Snowden-related intelligence uh, has not slowed down uh, what, in the media. What do you
2: mean by Snowden-related intelligence?
1: Documents that he stole. Okay. Um, so we, we have a nice graphical uh, depiction of early on, thirteen, two thousand fourteen, fifteen. 2014, uh, the U.S. media had really done a their due diligence and provided a lot of these documents and stories. <laughs> right now, uh, this past year, we have we had more international Snowden-related uh, documents and breaches than ever, but probably 98% of them were in Der Spiegel in Germany <laughs> or in The uh, the Guardian. <laughs> Very few of uh, these issues have been picked up by U.S. media, but our assessment is they're more damaging now. Some of the issues are with respect to our capabilities from collection, and they go out, and there's a consortium of people under the – the network that is under Snowden. They do a good job of researching and identifying uh, formers who could advise and inform what this collection means, and then do a, a thesis paper on it, 40, 50 pages, and get it published in Der Spiegel, and it gets read in Europe. But then they put it on the internet for sale and then it gets bought up and purchased by foreign adversaries. So it's been very problematic uh, for our collection agencies because some of it um, is with respect to some of the tools that we have and the techniques and the uh, development that we do for collection of our own intelligence. And the more our adversaries are informed by that, the more difficult it is to collect. So I would say that uh, uh, there's been no drop off in Snowden-related damage, um, but there's been less interest. So for our world, it's not been any easier, but I think we just have not had to deal with uh, the onslaught of U.S. media.
2: Um, So let's talk a little bit about cyber, and in particular how um, counterintelligence fits into the government cyber strategy. And for example, um, how do you work with Cyber Command and the National Security Agency?
1: So uh, great question, and I think uh, I'm going to build a little bit more on your premise. Um, At the end of the day, um, cyber attacks, cyber issues in the U.S. emanate from only four types of things. Number one, a nation-state threat actor or an intelligence service, um, a terrorist or terrorist organization, a criminal element, or a hacker activist. That's it. So we work in the nation-state threat actor world. So if it's a cyber threat event promulgated by the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, whoever, it's done by their intelligence services. So that falls into our, our space. So, the way we look at this, everything that's cyber related to a nation state falls in our, in our, in our lap as the intent of, this, of the strategic mindset of the foreign actor. Now, under the ODNI, uh, there is another uh, center called CTEC, the Cyber Threat Integration. We work closely with them to help drive and inform analysis and reporting to our policymakers. And they centralize that data from all the cyber centers. So we work in conjunction with them to drive not only collection requirements, but what does it mean? And then how do we take the threat information and in what we like to do in terms of our space is not necessarily with, the, with the, the intelligence community, but how does this matter to Department of Education, Health and Human Services, uh, the non-Title 50 organization, the executive branch? And then if there is collection on a particular breach that's in the private sector, what does that mean? And, and if we could help an, uh, advise and inform a uh, board of directors or a behavioral change like spearfishing, uh, that's kind of the goal. And I'll just give you some numbers. So, on the cyber side, we looked at all the breaches in the last uh, seven years. And whether it be you know, from Target all the way to OPM to the financial services sector, telecommunications sector, your travel records, mm-hmm. 90 plus percent of them have all been facilitated by a successful spearfish. Not by successful counterintelligence activity or- So that's
2: somebody clicking on-
1: Clicking on a link, you know, and I've said this before. um, Unfortunately, as Americans, uh, we have an an incredible inability to not click a link. Uh, We just (laughs) cannot do it, right? So we are the, the best in the world at clicking on links, and our adversaries know that, right? So everything we could- we could track back almost every significant breach- uh, to someone clicking on a link that they haven't. So we work every now, I single day. The
2: target actually went in some software glitch. Uh, uh, wasn't it something to do with the, the HVAC, HVAC right, s- right. S- but s- it's, so
1: it's still a- clicking on a hyperlink to get there in an email, right? So well, it, you can go back, and I'm not going to get into the politics of, of things in the last couple of years, but uh, you name it, um, you're going to find someone. And the government and private sector do a lot of hard work on testing your employees And at the end of the day, we consistently fail these tests, right? So to me, you see a lot of work in the Great Britain now, and I think our private sector folks are are following in suit. How do we protect our employees from themselves? How do we get to a place where we can, from an IT system, prevent this from happening and not having to rely on our inability to say, hmm, that link looks suspicious? Mm -hmm. Can we do that from the behind the scenes and can we not allow that suspicious hyperlink?
2: You mean a a better filter? A better better filter And filter? and a
1: capability and algorithm to say, Yes, it might say New York Times, but it really it's spelled incorrectly, and it's really an IP that goes back to Moscow. So, right.
2: Or is there an easier way to handle that uh, the same way that we've got a sort of in New York or see something, say something?
1: Every organization that I know with private sector and government has that program. But again, so if you just think about uh, your life at work and then at home, how many emails you get, how many hyperlinks, hey, check this story out, hey, check this link, check this picture, it's all we do is click, right? Sometimes the email itself becomes superfluous and cloudy and you're worried about that hyperlink to a particular story. That's right. the way we we are as in our society right now. So where it's often masked whether it be a targeted spearfish or a fishing it in general, it's usually the header of the email that might say Bill Evanina, but it, but is spelled incorrectly. Right. And 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 uh, I got to be honest, I uh, I felt victim to this myself. So this is uh, something I try and teach my uh, my young, young son as well. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. A while back, we featured former FBI Director James Comey in the podcast. Then, he was still leading the Bureau. In the episode, he talks about terrorism, violence in minority communities in the U.S., and cybercrime.
2: We have a problem where all of us share a set of values that are in conflict, and we have to figure out how to resolve privacy and security on the internet and on our devices with public safety, and they're crashing into each other.
0: Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your podcast player. Then look for the show, The Complexities of Today's Security Challenges. There's also a link in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation. Here's NPR's Dina Temple-Rastin.
2: So let me get back to this this idea of, of, of supply chain. And what we saw in the paper this morning about Huawei and uh, ZTE, the, the, the Chinese uh, telecom companies. How does that fit in with what you're doing? Did Is that part of a broader strategy to try to get your arms around the supply chain problem?
1: Sure, it is. And, and Huawei and ZTE are not new uh, companies in this mix. Uh, I'll vector you back to 2014 when then uh, Chairman Rogers came out with a report about Huawei's systematic and strategic approach to take over our IT uh, in the US. and Then ZTE, I'll remind you, uh, if I'm not going to remind you, you probably don't even know, but ZTE was caught and was criminally charged um, for doing nefarious activity here in the US and was paid a $1.4 billion fine.
2: What was that nefarious? So
1: because what they were doing is they were not only, um, again, I'm going to try and (laughs) stay uh, unclassified here, but at the same time, provide the right information. So what they, they were doing is they were procuring illegally here in the U.S. trade-restricted data, and some of it they were selling to Iran and North Korea, uh, which was against, all and that's a that's a Chinese uh, telecom company, and they got caught, and they paid the fine, but they are... Um, and and promised
2: never to do it again.
1: Uh, well, exactly, right? And, and So to me, the paradigm is, is also this, and I think it's important to know. As Americans, we have grown up, and our country is based upon the premise that the government the private sector and the criminal element will be three separate buckets. And that's the, that's how we grew up, and that's what we believe, and that's what we know, and that's our that's our baseline for our bias. That's not the case in our adversaries, right? So in China, Russia, and Iran, the private sector, the government, and the criminal element are all the same, right? Okay. They don't have that bifurcation. So when they could have when we hear a whole government approach, it clearly is a whole government approach. So if you are a private industry, in the US and you want to do business with the Chinese, which we should want to do in the global economy, you have to hand over your source code to them. There's no reciprocity for that here in the US, right? So you're already at uh, for doing that and there's scores and scores of cases of economic astronauts where they've done that and then they have crushed that company. So I think that's kind of the unfair advantage we work with. And that also, back to your question on supply chain, as we call it encirclement, uh, we are nowhere near where we were 15 years ago with US-based companies who could provide the infrastructure and capabilities that the Chinese can now do. So that's problematic. It's good for business. And then when you go to a board of directors or a CEO and you say, hey, I know you have two bids. You have Cisco or Oracle. And then you have the Chinese company, which is 40% cheaper. It's hard to explain to them. And it's hard for them to explain to their constituents that they're going to pay 40% more for a US-based company because it doesn't um, threaten national security. And that's a tough space that we're in right now.
2: Right. And so my, my, my earlier question looked at uh, how you interact with NSA. So we, we clearly understand that in the context of Huawei that you just talked about. How do you interact with something like Cyber Command?
1: So uh, Cyber Command by itself, uh, we don't necessarily interact with them one-on-one. We look at more of the aggregate of the cyber centers. And we do that via uh, CTEC. So, the Cyber Threat Integration Intelligence Center brings all that data together. We work with them and we draw assessments and we provide uh, what that looks like to the policymakers and the Congress. And what the value we have is not only a tasking or we have a convening authority, we can go down and we often do go into the Congress and the White House and bring a, a really amazing aggregate team. We could bring NSA, CIA, FBI, DHS, NRO. NGA is one team and mm-hmm. give one community assessment. I think that's the value that our policymakers and legislators like to see is what's the government assessment versus one Z2 agency wise. right
2: And so you said you've been doing this for four years. Um, so I guess my question is how has the whole discussion about offensive cyber changed from four years ago to now because you're convening a lot of these people who actually do talk about right. things like offensive right. cyber.
1: So offensive cyber is complicated. Um, we clearly have the capabilities to do anything we want to do. Um, but it's it's a really gray space between capability and policy. And I, I think the, the the administration now, as the administration uh, previous, uh, always tolls with, what do we do here in this space? Uh, we do a lot currently, we just don't get caught, right? So, but there seems to be a lot of interest in uh, waving a flag and bragging that we that we have a cyber offensive policy or that we utilize it. Um, we do utilize it um, and most of that is is to collect intentions and plans of other foreign governments. Uh, but if we wanted to do stuff, we could do it. But there's also the other aspect and I think you see the, um, the, the conversation about what's the overall intent, right? And if we get in this game of retaliation, when does that end right and what are the unintended consequences
2: or uh, does it set a precedent or does it
1: set a precedent right and 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 there is there is a valued argument argument and again i'm going to be neutral i don't have an argument here that we're better than this right and that we have the ability and there's been some talk about having uh, un- setting norms uh, out there uh, that there's always
2: Norms, as in you don't hack into a hospital,
1: for example. Yes. I'm not a big believer in that. I just don't trust our adversaries that will ever follow any of that. So I'm more of a naysayer that um, I've been in this business too long to believe that the diplomatic um, portions of our adversaries will be in cahoots with the intelligence services of our adversaries. I don't see that ever happening.
2: But norms are like rules of the road, right? Rules so the when road. they do do that, you can at least say, look, this is you've just broken a norm, as opposed to, there are no norms.
1: That's right? correct. So I'll go back to um, a few years ago, uh, President Obama signed an agreement with uh, Xi Jinping to not spy anymore for economic reasons. Well, <laughs> it
2: wasn't really effective, is that what the shrug means for those who are We can move populist- on,
1: we can move on. Yeah, yeah. we can move on. Okay. <laughs>
2: Um, and, and you I could
1: ask a zillion private sector companies if they feel that was true or not. So. Right.
2: right. So, uh, my, my original question had to do with whether the conversation from four years ago about this mm-hmm. has changed from now. Has the conversation changed?
1: <sighs> in my world, I think it has with respect to, we believe um, and I say we in, in our intelligence space, that there's more room to do more things um but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do and i think this is where policymakers uh, earn their, their their money and their position to make these tough decisions and these decisions are decisions that are um based upon the whole of government and the whole of country right because you have to think seven steps from the decision to have uh, an effective cyber operation mm-hmm. so the conversation a little bit of, has changed. Uh, it has changed and i think it's changed Uh, More in the domain of other people involved in the conversation that might not have been involved uh, Three years ago, Mm -hmm. but I don't think the nature of the conversation has changed Mm -hmm. I think who is involved in the the conversation has maybe uh, morphed a little bit
2: in the way there's more private sector There's more
1: private sector There's more other parts of government because I think there's an understanding that if you take action or you do things and you might There are ramifications that I think more people are involved in the consequence world. I see
2: and, and how do you work with legislators in that in that respect?
1: So uh, we are in a, we are in an interesting space in the in the ODNI and NCSC, because we have that unique private sector government intel world. So we and my staff spend probably almost every day on the Hill talking about something and briefing the staffers and members on something, whether it be supply chain, critical infrastructure, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, you name it. And And was it always like that? It was always like that, right? So I think that the the difference now is I think we have a more receptive um, National Security Council to these issues than we did historically, which is exciting. And I think when you have an opportunity to talk about threat and how it's manifested to policymakers, uh, it gives the folks who work in this world every day a little bit more... um, manifestation that there could be some change, right? And I think that's always the challenge. Uh, our ultimate goal in our world is to provide the best and most valuable intelligence for our policies to take action. And I think we're in a pretty good space with that right now.
2: What do you mean by the NSC being more receptive?
1: Well, I just think that from my, in my world, counterintelligence uh, specifically, uh, we, we have been more engaged in this last year plus uh, than we have been in the, private, in the previous administration for in counterintelligence.
2: Really. And and is that because of things that were done to this country, or is that because of difference in attitude?
1: Uh, It could be those two plus more, right? So I think um, I don't know if I have an assessment of exactly what the five things are, but I think when you look at maybe the folks that came into this administration probably have a little bit more of a private sector flair, understand uh, the impact to capitalism and our our democracy, uh, as well as so many things have happened subsequently that I think we can't ignore. And I think we have now in our plate the ability to say the the so what. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe uh, years ago, um, the intelligence community was hard-pressed to show the so what and why this matters. Mm -hmm. I think we clearly have done that on the financial issues, what the economic uh, impact is to the United States when, you know, the Chinese spend uh, $80 billion a year in direct foreign investment in the U.S. What's the impact of that? Mm-hmm. I believe just now, our administration now, due to the makeup, is more interested in that number and how that impacts uh, across the U.S. country landscape than the previous administration.
2: And also uh, now the ramifications, we're seeing them much more clearly. So you see target, you see what's going on with the elections, et yeah, cetera, not exactly.
1: only that, but, you know, if, if, if the Chinese government is buying up uh, key aspects of our critical infrastructure and our technology base, um, is that a long-term national security threat for a country? I believe it is. My personal belief is our economic security is our national security. And our ability to be global leaders in so many things keeps that edge that we need and have to have. But we also have to understand that if we continue on the path, that gets eroded every year. And 15 years from now, maybe we're not in that same Aspect, right? And there are plenty of statistics to show you know, some of our adversaries' capabilities and their investment internally, whether it be in supercomputing or, or quantum, is out the roof. And we're not following suit here in the US.
2: So, when we see uh, on the front page of the New York Times uh, a discussion about the FCC and Huawei and ZTE, mm-hmm. was there somewhere earlier in the stream, were you involved in, in talking to them about what was happening? Yes. And how early in the stream do you, I'm assuming today's story was not a surprise Yeah, the
1: FCC uh, has been a great partner for the intelligence community for, for many years, and they've been part of uh, this discussion for, for a while. But I'll go back to my pr- previous president. I think the FCC um, has been able to do things now they probably weren't able to do a few years ago.
2: Because of the environment? or I think because, because of the nature of the
1: threat and how it impacts our, our, our society.
2: So let me ask you a question again about NSA and and Cyber Command. There's been a discussion for years now about separating the two. And I think now Cyber Command is going to be going to a a four-star. How does that affect what you do? And do you think that NSA and Cyber Command should be under the same person? Great
1: question. I I really don't have an opinion on on that per se. Um, But whether they're split or the same, it it won't impact what we do either way. There's, There's two aspects of that. Number one is the offense and the defense. Mm -hmm. So the defense won't change. Our ability to to take in and collect uh, globally uh, the threat information we need to have as well as the plans and intentions of our adversaries won't change. Uh, The functional decision to divide them uh, probably for them makes some sense functionally.
2: Just because it's a big job. It's
1: a big job. And then there's the offensive capabilities uh, sometimes uh, feed and advise the defensive, but they're two separate missions. Okay.
2: So let me switch gears again and talk a little bit about background checks. And specifically, the ability to do background checks. Um, DoD is talking a lot about this under DSS. What are your thoughts on how that'll all play out?
1: So I'm not sure this is a. Is there a problem on this issue right now?
2: With background I'm just checks. Yeah. <laughs> I hear. hear so or this tell. is
1: a, this is a daily part of my life. Um, um, yes, to all of the above. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin on this. So our 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 inability to bring on. Amazing talent in the government, uh, in a, an efficient, effective, speedy manner is is really defeating us right now in our capabilities, and that not only goes with respect to the government employment, but let me just give you a number. So uh, there's about 1.2 million uh, U.S. citizens, which I say have the privilege to have a, a, a top secret clearance. It's an amazing uh, gift that you've earned. Out of those 1.2 million. 400 plus thousand are contractors outside the government so this impacts industry as well and whether it in the defense industrial base or industry the government doesn't make anything we buy everything but somebody else makes it so those 1.2 million people we have gotten to a place over decades where we, the process has become laborious and just ineffective. So we are now trying to work, um, and there's two aspects of it. So the DNI serves as a security executive agent who drives all policies for how we conduct investigations and how we adjudicate. And we're working with the intergovernment team on the last four months or five months to be able to do two things. Um, Help the uh, National Background Investigation Bureau buy down their background. There's a big backlog of investigations that are sitting there. Help facilitate them buying that down and, and getting Um, Some resources put towards initial investigations at the same time what does that a new initial investigation look like at the end of the day in my opinion? um, If you're a a 23 year old woman coming out and having a master's degree or you're a 26 year old man and you've got that master's degree and you've worked for a company and you want to apply for and you get And you have a security clearance application That shouldn't take more than 30 60 days in my opinion Mm -hmm. to get that in do a requisite checks get them on board And then if you're in the intelligence community, you're going to be enrolled in what's called an insider threat program and continuous evaluation. So we're going to monitor you. So let's get those folks working because what we see um, from a combined security clearance and human resources perspective, Mm -hmm. we're losing amazing talent every day because if you are coming, if you're that woman who's graduating from uh, George Mason and you apply to work in the intelligence community for any agency or you apply to work for... A local company in Washington D.C. or Microsoft, are you going to wait a year to get your not only your human resource to get into the job and then get a security clearance, or you're going to go work? And I think that that inability to hire that awesome talent, especially in the cyber and the IT and data processing world, is problematic for us. So we have to fix this problem.
2: And how are we going to do that?
1: So there's a, 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 a we call it Trust the Workforce Two It's a new team that's been put together uh, because there are multiple organizations responsible for background investigation the the DNI the director of OPM uh, OMB has a big part of it uh, and there's 23 agencies who conduct own investigations Uh, as you talked about DOD just got their own investigations Mm -hmm. as well so we have to make sure we have a standardized practice for how we conduct investigations so they're all the same at the same time how we adjudicate those investigations and whether it be and you've seen some of the news in, in the White House recently what does that mean when you might have an issue or not and then how do we make sure that we are reciprocal so that if you are working in the FBI and you get a top-secret clearance, that should be reciprocal for any other agency.
2: But haven't we been talking about this for some time?
1: Um, since 1957.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I cannot we'll take be- any responsibility for that. <laughs> uh,
1: but I will say, and it's really, really, um, in the intelligence world, um, it's hard to be... Rah-rah, right? Because most of the stuff we deal with is is negative and and down, especially in counterintelligence. But in the security clearance world, with the partnerships that have been built and and currently exist with um, the ODNI and MBIB and OPM and OMB and DOD and and everybody else we've met as as a conglomerate of the universe, working with our congressional oversight folks, Senator Warner and Senator Burr and the White House, there's an amazing... um, realm of possibility right now because everyone's on the same team and that wasn't always the case so we have an opportunity now that I believe wasn't the case 10 years ago 20 years ago that have a really really uh as my boss calls it revolutionary change in how we do this uh because if we don't do it now uh sub, and I'll, I'll parallel this with the economic uh security threat 15 years from now we will not have that talent we five years from now we won't have talent in the government or in private industry to help keep our 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 nation strong
2: So your 30, 60 day uh, scenario, are we two years away from that? Three years?
1: So um, I am uh, bound to provide um, to Congress by the end of the year our new plan. So I believe that uh, in the next 30, 60 days we're gonna have the DNI issue some changes uh, that will promulgate some reduction in the backlog uh, drastically. We're gonna recalculate and review how we look at risk. So when we wanna give someone a top secret clearance, What are we looking at in terms of risk and what does trust mean? So, and we look at access to uh, classified documents and records. Uh, Some of the stuff that we look at now has been in place since uh, AIMS, and Hanson, right. and, and some of the way our adversaries acted a long time ago, those are no longer of value, right? And, and I look at, you know, if some some of the things so that are- So you're not
2: tracking Xerox machines anymore?
1: That's correct, right? And, and whether or not you travel to certain countries is, is probably not as big of an issue as it was back then. Right. Uh, your financial hardship, some of the rules that are in, in place are really archaic. Like uh, if you have $7,000 of bad debt on the books, it stems a separate investigation. A well, bad
2: debt meaning credit card debt? Yeah, or?
1: so to me, the 16000 is the average American's credit card debt. So, and, and if you ask some of the, the folks who do this for a living, they'll say, well, we've never really rejected anybody's uh, security clearance because of bad debt. Mm-hmm. So why do we spend so much time on it? So we're taking a really good look at what can we can eliminate. And if we were going to, and I'll look at it this way for this audience if we wanted to hire you or one of your family members, what are the four, five, six things we really got to know about you within mm-hmm. 30 days mm-hmm. to, to say Aaron yeah, what, A? Um, what
2: would those be? That's classified. <laughs> is it really? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's classified.
2: Wow, so easy. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think we have to say, you know, uh, and, and depending on where that clearance is uh, and, and who's given it to you, there's some key fundamental aspects of your trust and your history. Mm-hmm. And and what what does that look like in, in those 30 days? And then, because the other side of it is, if you're going in and you're going to be continuously monitored anyway, so we don't need to have a feeling of you're 100% trusted. We're never going to get 100% trusted. And then we work closely with the Brits and Australians and the Canadians trying to understand their vetting process. And we also, all, and I'll just stop at this, but we're also looking to get a more of a holistic look at the employee so instead of bringing them in from a human resource perspective, and once they're in, then getting them a security clearance process, we do some of that together, right? We do that initial vetting early on mm-hmm. so that we don't have duplicity. But in, in across the government, and oftentimes in the private sector, the security um, personnel and the human resource personnel are two different groups, right? So we're trying to maybe merge what we call suitability and security a little bit more tighter. Mm-hmm.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, just released a new episode that features stories from women crushing gender barriers. Karatalan Fatima was the first woman to join the Pakistan Air Force in the 1990s. She says progress can only happen in conservative countries like hers if women hold each other up. Support each other, just push and just make an example, set an example, and... and You know, give a hand to other women and take them with you. Find the episode by searching Aspen Insight on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Search for the episode, Make Way for These Changemakers. Here's the rest of today's show. Dina Temple-Rastin.
2: So, you know, there there are some people who say that one way that you could do a, a background check in the future would be just to ask someone for their phone and uh, by and downloading that. And then by looking at their phone, you know who they're talking to, you know where they've been. Do you see a scenario like that no, happening?
1: No, no. no. Why? Because, because um, we, we created something in this um, country years ago called an attorney. Right? And, uh, there are so, lots of them here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the Privacy Act of 1974 adds right. a lot of value to that. So, and, and I will um, I'll just parallel, in 2016, we issued um, from our office in the DNI the ability for every agency to utilize, um, what we call it, public checks. So your social media. So you can now, before you give someone a security clearance, for the first time ever in 2016, you can Google them or check their publicly available facing website. Facebook, Twitter, and as a lead indicator. So we allowed every agency to do that. Not many are doing it, right? Because just because we gave everybody the ability to do that, a lot of general counsels believe that's an invasion of privacy, or there's a lot of work involved. So so the idea of just checking someone's Facebook page or Googling them mm-hmm. is sometimes problematic um, on depending on how you look at it and what your interpretation is of the privacy act. Right.
2: Is that one of the things that needs to change?
1: I believe it does. I, I, I personally, and, and I, I've gotten in trouble with this in, on the Hill, um, to me if we are going to hire an individual or we're gonna give someone in a security clearance uh, and if we don't do a social media check, we're doing an amazing disservice, right? And I don't think that passes anybody's smell test that we would hire somebody or put them in contact with our nation's secrets without Googling them. I find that hard to believe.
2: And is that more acceptable now because mo- most companies are doing that? I,
1: I don't know if most companies will do that. And, and I, I work with private sector a lot on this. Depending on who you ask, depends on whether they do it. There's a lot of folks who, um, from an HR, human resource perspective, won't do that. And some will. And I think it comes down to your general counsel on whether or not you believe you should. There's no particular law about that. But to me, it's, it's normal due diligence. We're asking employees to provide their most intimate data on these forms, whether it be financial or life. But yet, we can't Google them or check their Facebook. And when I say publicly available, it's what you get on the internet, right? You can't ask for passwords, but you know, to me, if we're gonna give someone a security clearance that's gonna be working on uh, the Iranian threat, mm-hmm. it would be good to know uh, what their Facebook page cover is, maybe uh, has a swastika on it or has a mm-hmm. flag of the Palestinians that would probably be good information to know. Right.
2: Okay. So let me just switch gears one more time, and that has to do with with private surveillance and and sensors. Given that we have so much of that everywhere, there's Planet.com, which takes a whole picture of, of the Earth every twenty four hours. Um, you used to be on the operational side, and um, And I know you were involved with the No More Secrets uh, report that the ABA did a couple of years ago. Can you comment on how the profession has changed because of this increased transparency? Mm -hmm. I mean, you no longer, you being the intelligence community or the government, no longer has uh, all the government themselves, uh, all the information themselves. Private companies now can Mm -hmm. provide information that only you used to. How's that changed the environment?
1: It has changed dramatically. And I think uh, some of the conversations we have when we look at Uh, the capabilities that we have in society and if you just google uh, spying on your spouse or anything like that Mm -hmm. astronomical there's things out there in the in the ethernet um that we would dream about 10 years ago in the intelligence community the capabilities that we have so not only do we have to worry about what we do and collect legally under under the laws and authorities we we are granted as a us government but what happens in society and, and because as consumers we want things fast and fierce and we don't want checks and I'll, I'll use you know amazon's Alexa as an example we all want amazon's Alexa we all want it it's in everybody's house but we don't want any security on it right but it makes us very vulnerable right mm-hmm. so when it comes to collection and you're, you're the sensors, you call them. Uh, The ability to collect on each other as Americans is fascinating right now, Uh, whether it be through a baby monitor or more sophisticated. And if you just want to spend $100, you could do things that the CIA and NSA would dream about 20 years ago. So it's it's pretty scary. Now, my argument is, going back to the Snowden date, um, and again, depending on... this is my personal view. We need to do a better job in the government to be more transparent about what we do and how we do it. And I think that at the end of the day will uh, keep us out of hot water and will make our uh, oversight committees in Congress as well as the, pu- the, the public understand what we do and why we do it and who we do it against, mm-hmm. right? And, and we don't do it against U.S. citizens unless we have a viable reason, a predicated investigation that most of our collection is against bad people. And I think we, we, over time, we have not done a good job in the government of being transparent about that.
2: Um, But there's also the problem that the private sector now can provide the information that you used to be able to provide, which means that if you're looking for answers, you could go uh, anywhere. Let's say, for example, um, do we know whether or not planet.com is overshooting right now the uh, chemical plant that was uh, droned uh, several days ago or last weekend? Uh, And can it keep an eye on what's going on there, whether or not people are actually changing the environment there before the inspectors get in, that sort of
1: thing. That's, that's a very good point. And I think that tool, uh, the, the government has to do a better job of being able to utilize that tool and, and, and have a contract where we could use that company, or we could use Google for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I use the metaphor of everybody loves their Google Maps. But if everyone found out how they make those maps, mm-hmm. people would be very upset with that and how you're being tracked in your cell phone every moment, every minute. But as consumers, we love that. But right. not everyone, everyone's necessarily our government that had that same capability. Right. So there is a big divide with that. But the government, and I will call it open source collection, the government has gotten much better with utilizing mm-hmm. a private sector. And, and whether it be satellite information or small collection devices, we call it off-the-shelf technology. We've done a, a much better job, but we have a long way to go with that. Not only with being able to do that, but able to satisfy our privacy and civ- civil liberty folks that we're doing it right. But there's sort of
2: a veracity issue here too, right? That That people might be a little bit, suspicious if the U.S. government says, hey, we can see that people are actually moving the dirt around uh, in this uh, chemical plant in Syria, whereas Planet.com has no dog in this fight, for example, or a company like it Mm -hmm. could say, we see people moving dirt around there, and there would be more trust, I guess, in what they say than necessarily what the U.S. government would say.
1: Well, I would hope that wouldn't be true um, as a third-year government employee,
2: right. Um, It'd be much harder for the Russians to say, the Brits and the Americans have made all this up if planet.com is saying this is the picture we took?
1: That's a great question. And I also think that it's important to know that not all the information intelligence the government gets is from the government, Mm -hmm. right? We do work closely with a lot of private sector folks uh, to uh, obtain this information intelligence around the globe. So Mm -hmm. that that we do do that. It's probably most of the time not all that well-disclosed. Um, for the company's well-being, for that matter. Uh, but yes, you're correct, and I think uh, on that, we have to be more creative in transparency in what works. And I think uh, the ODNI has been leading this effort uh, for a couple of years now and saying, hey, how do we get better at transparency? And how do we bring our intelligence community folks with us to that realm? Because they have a mission to do. They have a mission is protect America and drive intelligence. But how do we, as an organization, and as a government writ large, ensure to the public that trust? And that ability that we are doing things for the right reason, and that to your point, what is the veracity of that, and could people believe that to be true? So when the government has an assessment that dirt has been moved, it should not matter where the, uh, the intelligence came from, whether it be private or public, uh, but that should be uh, a true fact. And I think that's we have to we have to get there. If we're not there, and some of the some of the venues to get through that will be through transparency. Uh,
2: that's all the time we have today. I'm sorry. Thank you very much for coming to
1: us.
0: William Evanina is the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. He's the head of counterintelligence for the U.S. government and advises the director of national intelligence. Dina temple rastin is NPR's counterterrorism correspondent. She has written four books including The Jihad Next Door, Rough Justice, in The Age of Terror. They spoke at the Aspen Institute headquarters in Washington, D.C. as part of the Washington Ideas Roundtable series. The Institute's Homeland Security Program hosted the discussion. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenan and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Homeland Security Programming team is Rob Walker and John Hogan with help from Zach St. Louis. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.